The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. We continue. You've listened to a long and complex case, murder in the first degree. A premeditated murder is the most serious charge tried in our criminal courts. You've listened to the testimony. You've had the law read to you and interpreted as it applies in this case. It's now your duty to sit down and try and separate the facts from the fancy. One man is dead. Another man's life is at stake. If there's a reasonable doubt in your minds as to the guilt of the accused, a reasonable doubt, then you must bring me a verdict of not guilty. Now, if, however, there's no reasonable doubt, then you must, in good conscience, find the accused guilty. However you decide, your verdict must be unanimous. In the event that you find the accused guilty, the bench will not entertain a recommendation for mercy. The death sentence is mandatory in this case. You're faced with a grave responsibility. Thank you, gentlemen. The alternate jurors are excused. The jury will now retire. Thursday, February 2nd, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call to reach us to discuss today a number of subjects. Among them, you can lead a jury to court, but you can't make them think, eh, Robert? Mm-hmm. And you're going to be taking a look at the root of dishonor as you look at the Shafia trial. The Shafia trials yes. in Kingston, yeah. And I will be looking later on in the show on the issue of a, a little bit of a conclusion and follow-up to my comments last week on the whole Caterpillar and Electromotive issue. And I'm, at the end of the show, I want to take a look at what has been going on in Davos, Switzerland, where they are having discussions to redesign capitalism, apparently. Oh, isn't so that lovely? Yeah, we should have some fun with that. <laughs> so uh, I guess you're starting it off with... Uh, the jury issue, eh? Yeah, um, the question I'm going to ask is, is it proper to compel somebody to sit on as a juror? And this issue has come up because uh, of a rather unusual event which took place here in London uh, where 20 people were rounded up in the street and told to appear before a judge the next day as potential jurors. And, now, you're uh, taking this question a step further, then. You're not just addressing that, but the whole point of even... Compulsory jury duty at Compulsory all? Compulsory jury yeah. in general, yes. yeah. And for those who haven't heard of this particular event, it was in the oh, London Free couldn't Press. I believe it when I read it. But yeah, I didn't need, even hear about it until a week after the fact because I oh. don't, don't subscribe to the paper, but <laughs> nobody told me about it. But anyway, on January 17th uh, of this year, three men were being tried for the serious offenses of assault, forcible confinement, and threats. It had been over two years since the crimes, and this was the third attempt at beginning the proceedings when the judge ran out of jurors, having vetted over 130 already. There was still one vacancy for an alternate juror called a uh, talesman. Not wishing to see trial delayed any further, Justice Kelly Gorman 
ordered the Middlesex County Sheriff and the London Police to round up 20 bystanders off the street and order them to appear in court the next day as potential jurors. Now, here's an observation from uh, one of these hapless people, a Mr. Scott Johnson, who likened his experience to bullying. He wrote to the Free Press the following, quote, I was walking to my car on a darkened street corner when approached by a woman. I was asked if I could be spoken to for a minute. I decline and politely indicate I'm in a hurry. All of a sudden, now comes a sheriff's badge pointed towards me, and I'm told that I have to speak to her and that I cannot leave. At the moment, a uniform uh, at that moment, a uniform officer who was standing a bit of a distance away walked over to the side of the woman and looked at me, but said nothing. I thought to myself that I have no option but to remain because if I tried to leave, there would have been a chase or worse. I was asked two questions: Are you a Canadian citizen? Are you over 18? I answered yes. I was then presented with a piece of paper and asked for identification in the form of a driver's license. I produced it and the sheriff started writing down my name and address information on a clipboard. I was informed I must show up in court the very next morning at 9.30 a.m. for jury duty. He then goes on to explain how this uh, adversely affected him because he had a train to catch to Toronto for his business and that uh, it was a substantial inconvenience to train somebody else to take his place in Toronto the next day. Now, these 20 people were being rounded up under a little-used provision of the Canadian Criminal Code called Section 642, Paragraph 1, entitled Summoning Other Jurors When Panel Exhausted. And it reads, quote, If a full jury and any alternate jurors considered advisable cannot be provided, notwithstanding the relevant provisions of this part, have been complied with, the court may, at the request of the prosecutor, and I find that, by the way, very interesting, at the request of the prosecutor, order the sheriff or other proper officer to summon without delay as many persons, whether qualified jurors or not, as the court directs for the purpose of providing a full jury and alternate jurors. When I first asked the question whether or not people should be uh, compelled to sit as jurors, I'm willing to bet to anyone not familiar with these events that you might find it reasonable to receive a letter in the mail asking you to report in two or three weeks' time, plenty of time for any one of us to put our affairs in order, to the courthouse for jury duty. As a matter of fact, Bob, prior to this particular event, I never heard anybody ever really question the notion of compelling, being compelled to sit as a juror. This particular event was quite precipitous for this one. Yeah, I can understand that. And I, I know of cases where, as you say, when you get a letter three weeks early or something like that, there's also that period to get out of jury duty of as course. well. There's a so so there's, there's some kind of process there. there that's right. the exact word I want to use in this particular mm-hmm. case. It's process. And whether or not the process has prompted people to be, um, or to question the notion of compulsion when it comes to jury duty. Now, if you receive this letter, right, let's just, just you say, there's a, a, a matter of process. Um, you might also have expected that you uh, would be given the opportunity to get out of jury duty due to extenuating circumstances. Everybody has that um, in front of them. They, they know that if they go there and basically say something or another, mm-hmm. a financial problem, babysitting problem, a work problem, whatever that um, they'll get off jury duty. That's why they went through 130 people already just to find a jury in this particular case. So that must have meant that, uh, what, almost 120 people 
were dismissed for one reason or another. So people don't normally think of jury duty as being compulsory in this day and age, in this society, but it is. Now, the, many of those who were rounded up, they missed trains, as Mr. Johnson had, or work, or had to arrange for babysitting, or any other myriad of excuses that 20 people might have had had given that order to forget about what you had planned for tomorrow, because you're going to be in court. Imagine that, just walking down the street. And well, the you won't, you won't see up. me hanging around the courthouse anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, and a matter of fact, that's probably where it was, just at mm -hmm. the courthouse there. The sheriff just goes downstairs and starts grabbing people. Not physically, I don't think, but starts rounding no. them up like a posse. Now, this criminal code provision, while an obvious attempt to allow for speedy justice, is unjust in itself. What it does is take innocent people, subject them to force, and give them no option but to comply regardless of circumstance. But is jury duty under any circumstances justified? Consider this quote I found from uh, Cicero. Quote, we are all servants of the laws in order that we may be free. Now, by this, I take uh, that the Roman statements was a statesman was acknowledging the fact that in order to be free in a political context, there must be laws, and by implication, a system of justice. If we accept this, then must we accept to have our rights infringed upon from time to time as a price to pay for the enacting of this system of justice? Many might say yes. On the one hand, I'd agree that the right to a trial by a jury is a fundamental component of a system of justice. The alternative, of course, would be that for every serious offense, you are to be prosecuted by the state and judged by an employee of the state. To be able to plead your case to a community of your peers, I think, is a fundamental component of justice. But must we compel citizens to sit in judgment of us? I don't believe so, for the following reason. You are compelling someone to think. Now put yourself in the shoes of these 20 people rounded up. Section 642, paragraph 1 states that while it is the judge who gave the order, it's at the request of the prosecutor. And by the way, reading that newspaper article, nowhere did it mention that the prosecutor asked the judge to round these people up. As a matter of fact, it said that it was the judge who placed the order. Mm -hmm. And there was no... And notice that um, it was because of the prosecutor. So I wonder whether or not the judge actually complied with the law properly and did it at her own request or at the request of the prosecutor. Interesting. I wonder if the free press would have found that. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. So here you are. Totally inconvenienced and possibly at great expense, sitting in judgment of three people, the same prosecutor wants you to find guilty. Do you think that it's possible that out of resentment for the prosecutor, you find in the defendant's favor just to spite the prosecutor, the one who rounded you up? In other words, the compulsion to attend has tainted your ability to think through the facts of the case without bias. And I'd contend that only a jury made up of volunteers, properly compensated for their time, is able to properly consider the facts of any court case without bias for or against the accused due to the manner in which they were asked to act as jurors. There are thousands of eligible citizens in this city willing and able to perform the function of juror if they were only treated with respect. If they were properly requested to attend, if they were given opportunity to decline, and if they were 
compensated for their time. Yes, you may be able to force a man to sit on a jury, but you can't make him think. And after all, isn't that exactly why he's supposed to be there? Absolutely. You know, it's not to say that regardless of which system you use, that the prosecutor and defense don't go through that rigorous system of, of vetting each juror. Mm-hmm. So that process is not going away either way you look at it. This from what you're from what you're suggesting, right? No, no. As a matter of fact, um, just to put a little context into this, the three men who are being uh, who are being tried had three lawyers. Each lawyer had the opportunity to ask twelve uh, ask a question. You mean of one each lawyer jury. each? One lawyer each. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there was thirty six questions um, being asked of the uh, potential jurors. So um, in that way, they got rid of. Uh, what, over 120 of oh, them already. I can, that's, I can see where the problem comes up when you got that many lawyers choosing. Yeah, yeah, I think one of the questions may have been something like, do you think you could give an unbiased opinion um, based on the fact that my client is black, mm-hmm. for example? So uh, <laughs> if you basically call yourself a racist, then off you go. You're not a, you're not a potential juror. So, no, there is a, a vetting process, and I, and I agree with the vetting process, but I think that we have to have some sort of way to uh, ask people to be on a jury and uh, make it a voluntary thing rather than a compulsory thing because it biases one's uh, train of thought. You know, I, I imagine there is a belief, too, that it's similar, you know, to the issue of conscription as it was during a war. If you didn't conscript people, you wouldn't have enough people for the job. That's right. But that was never true, not even in conscription. And as, if, as we go and look back over history, we find that a lot of people were conscripted, you know, who wouldn't, didn't want to go to the war and weren't the best there, while others who were willing to go couldn't go. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Consider and, yourself again uh, as a juror, right? Um, you've been conscripted, as it were, to sit on the panel as a juror, and the trial is taking a long time. Now, during your deliberations, you're not making any money, your family is probably out the breadwinner, you have compelling reasons to get that trial over with as quick as possible. Yeah. You really don't want a juror in a hurry to decide your case. You want somebody who's going to give a considered opinion to the facts and judge accordingly. So compulsory juries, thumbs down. I agree. So anyway, that's um, my first segment. On the second segment, we're going to be talking about justice again. And this case is going to be the the Shafia trial in Kingston, which uh, found some people guilty of honor killings. But before that, we're going to take a little break and listen to a bit more from 12 Angry Men. I don't know if you recognize that first clip at the uh, introduction of the show, but that's from the film. Uh, Sidney Lumet, I think, was the director. It was uh, done in the 50s, series. wasn't it? Uh, 57, 58, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah, uh, in the before time. Very good movie, by the way. It was. I just watched it recently to get some of these clips. and um, Obviously a stage compelling. play originally, too, because you can do the whole thing in one room around yep. the table. One room. Very, and, and yet it's a movie, and I was just glued to the screen. It's powerful. Yeah. I, I recommend it. It had such a realistic feel about it. You know? Oh, yes. Henry Fonda stars, as well mm-hmm. as a number of uh, other people. Uh, Klug, Jack Klugman was in it as well. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's hear a little bit more from 12 Angry Men. Well, I suppose somebody has to start it off again. I beg pardon. I beg pardon. What are you so polite about? For the same reason you're not. It's the way it was brought up. This fighting, that's not why we are here to fight. We have a responsibility. This I have always thought is a remarkable thing about democracy, that uh, we are... Oh, what is the word? 
uh, notified, that we are notified by mail to come down to this place to decide on the guilt or innocence of a man we, we have never heard of before. We have nothing to gain or lose by, by our verdict. This is one of the reasons why we are strong. We should not make it a personal thing. Thank you. Nobody else has an idea. I might have a cutie here. I mean, I haven't given it much thought, but let's throw it out on the stoop and see if the cat licks it up. The cat licks it up? Yeah. It's the boy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, gentlemen, uh, if I can have your attention, uh, you fellas can uh, handle this thing any way that you want to. I'm, um, you know, I'm not going to make any rules. Uh, we can, well, discuss it first and uh, then vote on it. That's, of course, uh, that's uh, one way. And, uh, well, we can uh, vote on it right now. And I think it's customary to take a preliminary vote. Yeah, let's, let's vote. Who knows? Maybe we can all get out of here, huh? Uh-huh. Okay, then uh, I think that... Um, of course, you know that we uh, have a first-degree murder charge here, and if we vote the accused guilty, uh, we've got to send him to the chair. Um, that's mandatory. I think we know that. Let's yeah, vote. let's see who's where. Okay, um, anyone doesn't want to vote? Try with me. Okay, then uh, just remember that this has to be 12 to nothing either way. Um, that's the law. Okay, are we ready? Uh, all those voting guilty, Please raise your hands. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, that's eleven. Guilty. Who's voting not guilty? One. Right. Eleven guilty. One not guilty. Well, now we know where we are. Boy, oh boy, there's always one. <laughs> oh, what are we doing now? I guess we talk. Boy, oh boy. You really think he's innocent? I don't know. That was from 12 Angry Men. And there was 12 men and women in Kingston recently who passed judgment on Afghan immigrant Mohammed Shafia, his wife Tuba Mohammed Yahya, and their son Hamid were found guilty of murder. Dead are Mr. Shafia's three daughters and his first wife. And while the facts of this case were interesting in their own right, I followed it for quite a while, very interesting. To me, the most important feature of the trial was the labeling of the murders as either honor killings by some or domestic abuse by others. Now, after the verdict was handed down, the local talk show gave considerable airtime to local feminist Megan Walker. During that time, Ms. Wagger correctly pointed out that this is about violence against women. This is about power and control. Now, I'd agree with those obvious facts, as many would. Ms. Walker then went on to great lengths to distance these types of killings from any other common domestic dispute involving a dominating male over a female. She tried to make no distinction as to the cultural background of the Shafias and that of any other domestic abuser in Canada. This, 
I think, is a superficial simplification of what is actually a much more complex affair. Yes, honor killings are typically men murdering their wives and daughters, but it is not simply the same as any other domestic violence. The reason for the crime is what is at issue here. Not simply that a man killed another woman or that this is inherent in the male sex to want to dominate and control the female sex, a falsehood, by the way. Many feminists see this as simply a male-female issue, ignoring or misidentifying the root cause of this kind of violence, that being the culture, the religion, and the philosophy of the killer. Why does one kill his wife or daughter? That's the question that can't simply be glossed over with the pat statement that it's a lust for control. I've heard Miss Walker before deflect any attempt to ascribe honor killings to Islam. She would immediately say that women are being killed in Canada too. Christians kill their wives as well. Of course that's true. But Christian men rarely kill their wives or daughters as frequently as Muslim men kill their women and certainly not always for the same reasons. A man and woman get into a fight. Who do you think is going to come out as the survivor? The stronger of the two, of course, in most cases. The fight could be over money, jealousy, housekeeping, what to watch on TV, drunken idiocy, or any number of motives. You always hurt the one you love, as they say. Yes, true. Rare is it that a non-Muslim Canadian will kill his daughter because she went out on a date or chatted with someone on Facebook or didn't want to wear a particular piece of clothing or gave birth to a daughter. One of the most recent ones is where a, uh, a man actually strangled his daughter because she bore him a daughter. Absolutely disgusting. Although honor killings are not exclusive to Muslim societies, I grant anybody that fact, the fact is that predominantly Muslim societies have a long tradition of treating women as property. Men often, quite literally, get away with murder in places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, or Saudi Arabia because of their culture. Rooted in Islam has given the authority over women to men. Canadian Muslim Tariq Fatah, founder of the Muslim Canadian Congress, published an article in the Huffington Post on December 7th of last year called A Man's Honor Lies Between the Legs of a Woman. In it, he quotes the particular verse in the Quran, verse 434, sanctioning the right of a husband to beat his wife. Men are in charge, and I'm quoting here, men are in charge of women by right of what Allah has given one over the other and what they spend for maintenance from their wealth. So righteous women are devoutly obedient, guarding in the husband's absence what Allah would have them guard. But those wives from whom you fear arrogance... Fear, uh, first advise them, then if they persist, forsake them in bed, and finally strike them. That's out of the Quran. If we cannot acknowledge this part of the Muslim religion as being key to the second-class status Muslim men give women, then it would be impossible to move towards true liberation for women in predominantly Muslim societies and Muslim societies here or fam families here in Canada. Mr. Fatah goes on to say that Sharia law sanctions the stoning of women for adultery, a practice that has continued today in many Muslim countries. He cites Professor um, Sharzad Mohab of the University of Toronto, who testified at the Shafia trial, that women embody the honor of men to whom they belong, first fathers and brothers, 
later husbands. Quoting from uh, Professor Mohab, A woman's body is considered to be the repository of family honor. Honor crimes are acts of violence committed by male family members against female family members who are held to have brought dishonor onto the family. Cleansing one's honor or shame is typically handled by the shedding of blood. Unquote. It wasn't until 9-11 that many Canadians even heard of honor killings. I know it didn't really enter in my consciousness until after the, the, those attacks. But since then, our focus has turned, as it has been forced to, to Islam and Muslim culture. Since then, our knowledge of this common practice of the ownership of women by Muslim men has increased, and we can properly address the situation. Many of us correctly identify the murders based on the motive of keeping the family's honor. For prominent feminists, to disregard motive in the murder and abuse of women is only prolonging the suffering of these people. To fix a problem, you must first properly identify the root cause of it. In the case of honor killings, it's the religion and the cultural practices of the men and women who commit the murders. And we can't forget that women also take part in committing these honor killings. It's ironic that in Canada, we have people refusing to call something by its real name. When in Muslim countries, it's identified for what it is. In in Pakistan, for example, honor killings are known as karokari. While the Pakistani government is supposed to prosecute these killings as they would any ordinary killing, the practice by the police and prosecutors is often to ignore it. In a sense, there are, there are some Canadians who are ignoring it as well. Not the crime, but the cause. And that's just not right. But if we consider the problem of honor killings even further, we understand that it's not simply a matter of religion or culture, but of social metaphysics. In an article for the uh, Objectivist Newsletter of November 1962, Nathaniel Brandon defined social metaphysics, a term he coined, as, quote, the psychological syndrome that characterizes an individual who holds the consciousness of other men, not objective reality, as his ultimate psychoepistemological frame of reference, unquote. He says, there is an invisible killer loose in the world. I'm going to quote at length of him here. An invisible killer loose in the world. This is Nathaniel Brandon. This is Nathaniel Brandon in 1962. Mm-hmm. And he, I don't think honor killings were at the forefront of his mind no, here. No, that wasn't in the... <laughs> no, of course not. As a matter of fact, he probably never heard of him then no. either. He was thinking of other things. But it fits perfectly in this situation. Just consider Muhammad uh, Shafia as the per- particular person he's talking about here. There's an invisible killer in loose in the world. It has claimed more victims than any other disease in history, yet most of its symptoms are commonly regarded as normal. That is the secret of its deadliness. These symptoms may be observed all around one in the lives of all those who are dominated by an obsessive concern with gaining the approval and avoiding the disapproval of their fellow men who lack a self-generated sense of personal identity and who feel themselves to be metaphysical outcasts, cut off from reality, whose first impulse when confronted with an issue or called upon to pass a judgment is to ask not what is true, but what do others say is true, who have no firm, unyielding concept of existence, reality, 
facts as apart from the judgments, beliefs, opinions, feelings of others. Unquote. And that's from Nathaniel Brandon. This defines, for me, the perpetrators of honor killings. They seek honor in the approval of others, their family, their friends, their tribe. While this syndrome crosses all religious and cultural spectra, it is most prevalent in those countries lacking the history of individual freedom that we here in the West enjoy. It's this syndrome which must be argued against when dealing with the warped sense of honor which would cause a parent to kill a child or a man to kill his wife because of any perceived shame they may have brought them in the eyes of others. That, to me, is the root of dishonor. Oh, and not only that, you know, that's the, that's the force you see at play in gangs. Yes, in, in social approval. That's what it's all about. And you can also see the issue from the perpetrator's point of view, assuming he views someone else as, the, as his property, right? Yes. Whether it's, whether it's the wife or the child or whoever. He would then see that person as an extension of himself, right? Without a free will of their own. And if they act yes. on their own, that's like an inner conflict. It's an affront to his authority. Yes, and just not to his authority, but also as a part of him, if that's his property. You don't like your property taking, <laughs> taking action against you or it's doing like things you don't want to do. rebelling against their master. You know, you get in your car, you want to turn left, and the car decides to turn right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't think you're going to keep that car too long. <laughs> Anyways, that's a, it's a terrible situation, and it's, it's something that you can only fight with philosophy, I guess. Yes, I think so. That it for that, Robert? That's it for that. Okay, <laughs> well, we'll take a break again. We'll hear a little more from 12 Angry Men as we go to our bottom of the hour break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about a fair share in profits. I mean, you sat in court with the rest of us. You heard what we did. The kid's a dangerous killer. You could see it. He's 18 years old. Well, that's old enough. He, he stabbed his own father four inches into the chest. They proved it a dozen different ways in court. Would you like me to list them for you? No. Then what do you want? I just want to talk. Well, what's it to talk about? Eleven men in here think he's guilty. No one had to think about it twice except you. I want to ask you something. Do you believe his story? I don't know whether I believe it or not. Maybe I don't. So how come you vote not guilty? Well, there were eleven votes for guilty. It's not easy to raise my hand and send a boy off to die without talking about it first. Well, now, who says it's easy? No one. What, just because I voted fast? I honestly think the guy's guilty. Couldn't change my mind if you talked for a hundred years. I'm not trying to change your mind. It's just that we're talking about somebody's life here. We can't decide it in five minutes. Supposing we're wrong. Supposing we're wrong. Yeah. Supposing this whole building should fall down on my head. You can suppose anything. That's right. Look, what's the difference how long it takes? Suppose we uh, do it in five minutes. So what? Let's take an hour. Ball game doesn't start till eight o'clock. Who's got something to say? I'm willing to sit for an hour. Great. I heard a pretty good story last night. That's it's not why we're sitting here. All right, then you tell me. What are we sitting here for? I don't know, maybe no reason.
One for you and six for me. One for you and six for me. Would you stop looking so glum? Payday is supposed to be a time of joy. I know, brother. But every week it's the same thing. Six for you and only one for me. It's not fair. You're right. I am? Yes. It's not fair. It's not? Absolutely not. One for you. And... Seven for me. One for you. And... Seven for me. Is that better? And where are you going? To bed. To dream of an equal share of profits. Dream on. One for you. And seven for me. <laughs> Jeez, there's something vaguely familiar about that conversation. Very eerie, isn't it? Hmm. Can't quite put my finger on it. Let's see. Employer makes lots of profit. Employee already being paid a share wants more. Employer lowers his share. Hmm. Robert, I swear that sounds familiar somehow. <laughs> uh, what am I thinking? It's just a sci-fi fantasy. Eh? <laughs> Can't possibly happen. But of course, that is probably very much how a lot of people in the union see the situation with Electromotive, wouldn't you say? I would do, yes. Yeah. So, has much changed since the last week when we discussed this issue? I would say not, you know. But there was something surprising over the past week. One thing that's not surprising is that unions would kind of ignore their own situation in this. And I'm going to call it greed, as I did last week. But what I found surprising was how the media over the past week was similarly so inclined to ignore the actual story. Not one of them that I'm aware of even dared to ask the obvious, or more importantly, to stick the obvious in the faces of union leaders who are issuing their outrageous media releases and statements to the media. And what I want to know is, you know, you know, it happened last week on on the last week Thursday when Caterpillar released its profit situation, and of course they had a record profit. Now, what that means, I don't know why people get excited about it. You know, GM just came out with uh, a record profit situation today, but that follows several quarters and years of losses. So now do we all get excited and, you know, take them down? Got to share that profit? Why? Because they made a profit in one period. Do you want to share the losses too? Right. That's the whole point, which, which we brought up last week. So what exactly do Caterpillar's profits have to do with the wages that they're offering? Well, you don't have to answer because I already have an answer, and the answer is absolutely nothing. Which also happens to be the question to the popular song, you know, War, What Is It Good For? <laughs> uh-huh, I'll say it again. <laughs> absolutely nothing is what Caterpillar's profits have to do with the wage rates they're offering. And you can test this theory very easily by asking yourself a simple question. Would anybody actually expect a, pr a prospective employee to rush to offer his or her labor at half price to some employer because they hear that they're under the burden of debt or they have financial difficulties or they aren't making a profit or they're just breaking even? You hear employees running out and saying, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll work for you at half price. No, they ask for the going rate or better because, you know, it's for their labor and they wouldn't offer it to anyone for not meeting their personal conditions that they need. And that sounds perfectly normal to me. There's nothing wrong with that. So why is it wrong 
when the company does the same thing. For what possible reason do the unions and their supporters expect Caterpillar to act differently from how they would act under the same circumstances? Now, of course, we heard last week, too, that members of the CAW Local 88 from CAMI were apparently blocking a train in Ingersoll, which they have since released from its host- hostage status, and uh, which was a locomotive manufactured by Electromotive that was being shipped to Tilsonburg to be painted. I think that blockade ended yesterday or the day before. And this is what they were calling their boycott. And one of the employees said, well, the only way we can stop them from making money is to stop the train from moving, says a spokesman. They actually said that? Yes. Stop them from making money? Yes. That was, that's, why, that's what I'm telling you. Of and, of course, and, of course, Tim Carey was there on hand for a supporting comment. Quote, it's time to get serious and kick the cat, also said an electromotive rank-and-file employee named Rod Wolf on a radio talk show Monday. He also reemphasized, I will not go back one penny. You know, he's not going to... I will not give them the satisfaction, he says. This is about... It's almost personal. You know, I'm not going to give them the satisfaction. When they're making all this profit and they're trying to muscle us like this, it becomes a personal issue. Not to mention that it's not just us that this is about. This is about the whole economy, not just about electromotive. And then the BS starts running again, eh? Then I had heard a fascinating call by an open-line caller named Angie who made an alarming observation. She says, you know, there's a global economy we're competing with, and there's no negotiation going on here at all. Caterpillar has an offer in the States at half price, and on the other hand, the workers are saying they're not taking a penny less. So there's no negotiation. The two sides have already, you know, firmly stated their positions. And then she points out that Joe Fontana was at the meeting at the the Victoria Park uh, get-together last week, uh, there to boost their morale, but she was afraid that what he was doing was giving them a false hope, which is not good for morale. You know, getting up there and saying cheering, that's basically what they're offering them now. We have hope. Hope. It sounds like a religious revival. You know, it's only hope is what they're selling. Well, the whole thing is based on emotion. It, I, sound, I, I hear very little reason from any side on this, except perhaps for Caterpillar. Yeah. So, so he was appealing to their emotions. He gave them what he wanted, what exactly. they wanted. So, you know, some of the basic... Uh, arguments I kept hearing over and over again. Um, one of them was there's a lot of tax dollars involved. The governments have given corporations tax breaks or given them incentives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and to which I say, so what? Whenever governments give breaks, they do it to create jobs. It's not for the corporations because they know the corporation creates the jobs, and it's always for the jobs that they do it. So when people are complaining that they gave them this money, well, the money was spent on their salaries. It doesn't stay there, and it's not there available forever and ever. It has to be constantly created, constantly earned. And then they say because Caterpillar has good profits, it should pay extra for its services, namely labor. Well, that's ridiculous. Profit is a consequence of good management and nothing else. A company can making a, be making a lot or a little, and in either case, be in a profit position or a loss position. That's not the issue. It's how well they manage it. Let's face it, a profit just means you spent less than you earned. That's all it means. And just because I saved some money, that means you have a right to it. So I should have spent it, right? And then you wouldn't be complaining about it. You know, it's true what John McMurray says. Wealth is the cause of violence, not poverty. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's been the history of, of, of humanity. And then they say that we can't accept lowering the standards of the industry. Well, I don't think they have to. You can say no. But it sounds like industry standards have already been lowered, and I think you have to join the crowd and the rest of the world. 
because that's what they're paying, apparently. Now, that's not to say that these wages that they're offering in the States are going to be the final deal, right? Because I understand they might be having a little bit of trouble pulling in labor at those lower wages. So maybe the real price is somewhere just a bit higher than that. We don't know that yet. And then they say it's a race to the bottom, to which I say again, you can say no. Because for the people who do say yes, it's a race to the top. But thanks to the closed shop, both are trapped in the position they're in. Then Tim Carey says, we're going, this, this, this blew me away, we're going to join the Caterpillar dealers in the celebration of their profits, he said on the radio last week. And I'm thinking, this union has no right to celebrate in the profits of the company. It doesn't share in the risk and it doesn't support a high profit for the company in the first place. Instead of recognizing that profits are the key to capitalization and that capitalization is required to make workers competitively productive, the union wants to lower the company's profits by distributing that profit more to labor, which in turn would leave less profit to invest in capital and to attract additional capital. And then says Tim Carey on December 16th, quote, let me make it clear, Caterpillar has not said that the plant is closing. What they're continually saying is that we have to be competitive. But the argument that they're making is competitive based on what they call the market, which is around $17 per hour U.S., rather than comparing us to our direct competitors. Does that make sense at all? I, I, I don't know. He says they can't come to London, Ontario and attack workers like this. They're trying to eliminate the middle class, says Kerry. A total slashing of our collective agreement. So he's saying the company wants to have market prices, but he wants to com only compete with, what, your competitors? That's the market. <laughs> what is he talking about? Like, like what, he's in, he's in an isolated market? And we only compete with our own employees? It's almost like, you know, I want a huge clothes shop, is what he's saying. The bottom line is nobody on the labor side of the issue has any answers or solutions. And they have no idea what's actually going on in the minds of Caterpillar's owners or operators. But whatever it is, I think it's their business. Unions are political organizations who can force their memberships to support them in all their socialist causes, which are all something for nothing. I mean, the ideology of the union is almost mid medieval in, in so many ways. And I think that uh, Milton Friedman agrees with me, as we'll hear and hear in this upcoming clip from the Free to Choose series, which was um, broadcast way back in the very late 70s. And we'll be back on the other side. These workers are on the other side of the union fence. They're building two social security offices in Baltimore. On this government project, everyone's a union worker. They rely on their union to protect them against competition from non-union labor. But some local contractors see a very different side to a closed shop. We don't feel that anybody should be denied a choice. We feel every man should have a choice if he wants to be unionized or not. Not legislative, not saying he must belong to a union. We feel when, a, when you tell a man he must belong to a union or he must do this or that, you're taking freedoms away from this man, a freedom of choice of this businessman here to choose me, to do business with me. All business needs this right to choose to do business with each other. And by the same token, our employees have the right to choose whether they want unionization or not. On this government site, authorized personnel only really means unionized personnel only.
Unions have long recognized that the surest and most effective way for them to get power without violence is to have the federal government on their side. That's why so many strong unions have made it a point to locate their headquarters close to the source of power. Set of this crisis, the amount of money still sloshing around planet finance boggles the mind. By one measure, the US stock of money is now $8.7 trillion, up 12% since last year. And some people are still pocketing a huge share of that cash. Last year, despite the onset of the biggest financial crisis since the Depression, his hedge fund paid George Soros a cool $2.4 billion. That's roughly 41,000 times more than the average American family earned. Of course, it was like uh, when you're betting and you win, naturally you have that satisfaction and also the profit. As they say on Wall Street, way to go. Way to go, George Soros. George Soros is a traitor to his class, writes Christia Freeland in her January 28th London Free Press commentary under Spirituality and Ethics. That's not an insult or a tabloid ex exaggeration, she continues. It is instead a direct quote from my conversation with the billionaire investor and philanthropist at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. I am a traitor to my class, Soros said. I think that the income differentials are too wide and ought to be narrowed, he added, which is why he favors a bigger hit on those like himself at the very, at the very top, she writes. Now, I have to add here how Soros would expect that ta taxing the rich would improve the conditions of the poor is anybody's guess. But I've never heard a rational explanation for this assumption, and I've never seen that being the consequence of taxing the rich. All the money comes out of the poor. That's, where do the rich get their money? They make stuff for the rest of us, right? And we pay for it. So it just isn't so. But she continues. But among his plu plutocratic peers, he said, that is very much a mi minority opinion. Soros helped spearhead the muscular Wall Street support for Barack Obama in the 2008 presidential election and believes the president's call for higher taxes is the reason he has been ditched by the financiers. Tax reform should follow the Buffett rule, the president said. If you make more than a million a year, you should not pay less than 30% in taxes. One of the big questions at the World Economic Forum uh, has designated for collective cognition is how to redesign, quote, unquote, capitalism. I personally believe that when it comes to policy, you shouldn't be pursuing self-interest, but the public interest, Soros said. But Davos man prefers to believe in a world of kumbaya capitalism, where self-interest and the public interest would coincide. Openly insisting that this is not always the case is how Soros really has betrayed his class. End quote from the writer. So much for both George Soros and writer Christia Freeland. Now, for me, the distinction between self-interest and public interest is moot in this case. When they say public, what they really mean is just another bunch of self-interests operating on taxpayer dollars and on state monopolies. But it's all self-interest. You know, gee, I feel so much better knowing that $400,000 a year salaries and $1 million bonuses going to top hospital corporation executives is money spent unaccountably and irresponsibly in the public interest, though. 
right? I feel better, rather than knowing it might have been earned responsibly, voluntarily, and accountably in the private interest. That's the difference between those two. Redesign capitalism? Hardly. Capitalism is what it is. If you redesign it, it's not capitalism anymore, but something else. And it's that something else that the Judas traitors to capitalism, like George Soros and Mr. Warren Buffett and Barack Obama, do not want you to hear or to understand. So they continue to call it capitalism, even though that's not what we have now and it's not what we'll have after their so-called redesign. Maybe they're hoping they'll end up with capitalism, but you'll never get anything called capitalism by screaming, tax the rich, straight out of the Marxist-Leninist Bible. That's what they're saying, right? Give me a break, as John Stossel would say. <laughs> capitalism is that economic system that arises when people are free to interact on a rational basis without the intervention of government. For that reason, it is the only known moral system of economic exchange, being based on volunte voluntary exchange, on contract, and on, on informed consent, even though governments routinely do not allow capitalism to exist. Capitalism is the separation of state and economics, which is singularly distinguished from all other economic or political isms. Clearly, when world leaders get together to talk about capitalism, they're only really talking about money and the economic consequences of their political policies and government spending. All of these things they call capitalism. If it involves exchanges, markets, currencies, banking, inequities, business, interest rates, the euro, on and on, it's all capitalism to them. They're truly ignorant. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's a basic epistemological disaster from which they cannot... Rise. You can't get past that point if you can't get past those basic definitions. It's like trying to f figure out a mathematical problem and you haven't figured out what the values of the numbers are yet. Mm -hmm. Literally, that's, what, that's where they're at with their thinking or, or lack thereof. You know, there are controlled markets, there are mixed markets, prohibited markets, regulated markets, and free markets. Only one of these that I just described can properly def be defined as capitalistic, and that's the free market. And just what is it specifically? that a free market is free of? Free from government involvement or authority? No, that's not what it's free of. Not of government involvement just because it's government, but free of coercion. Free to be in a market in which traders seek your consent and cannot legally obtain any values from you without your consent. That's what a free market is. That's what capitalism is. You think you're living in that? Show me where. To enforce such a market, you need a government even a capitalist government. Because not all traders are capitalists. Some will attempt to obtain your consent fraudulently, while still others may be totally unconcerned with your consent and may resort to other forces to artificially limit your choices in a given marketplace, which is why we need a government as a referee, not as a player in the game, as we so often hear. Remember, although it's somewhat redundant, it's called laissez-faire capitalism, not laissez-faire government. <laughs> Two different things. And... You know, legal coercion, as we had, um, who was it, um, Ludwig von Mises? Oh, sorry, no, it was Frederick Bastiat we quoted last week. Um, talks about legal coercion in the marketplace being found primarily in the form of monopoly, which is only made possible by government legislation, either prohibiting or encouraging some trades and competitors over others. We've just, you know, heard some examples of that in our previous segment with the unions. The alternative would be to let the customer decide and choose freely from among a number of given market options. 
Illegal coercion in the marketplace may take many forms, from the extreme of competing organized crime groups, literally eliminating the competition, as we saw recently in London with the arson and Hell's Angels murder event, (laughs) to petty theft, from milk marketing boards to state-subsidized housing, from state health care systems to Ponzi investment schemes, and on and on and on. Fraud and the violation of contracts are other possible sources of coercion in the marketplace. Sometimes it's tough to say it's coercion, but at the very least, they lead to conflict. And often lawsuits and some pretty nasty (laughs) name-calling. The common factor in considering whether someone's rights may have been violated is to be found in determining whether that person's property or money was obtained from him without his consent, or often without his knowledge. But all this is just about a free market and not about capitalism, which is much, much more, like the institution of private property. In fact, what I want to know is, what system would they not call capitalism? The words socialism, communism, fascism, and all the other avowedly evil isms are never the subject of economic conferences. You ever hear them come up? (laughs) They're always talking about capitalism. Although I stand somewhat corrected on this, having just learned about Cuba's first socialist conference. They just had that. But, um, you know, the way to defeat capitalism is by obliterating the concept. Ayn Rand used to say that all the time. That's why she wrote the book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. I think that's what their actual objective is. They're trying to paint what we live in today, which is a socialist state, as as capitalism. capitalism. So they can have more socialism. That's right. That's exactly the, the game plan. So the way to advance capitalism is by defining it, properly understood, No other system of governance would even be considered by those concerned with the well-being of mankind. Why would you? Government spending and economic planning are the major avoidable causes of the so-called growing gap of income that we're seeing today in the world. It's not capitalism. Give your heads a shake if that's what you're calling it. Forcing the rich or the corporations to pay more means forcing the poor and middle class to pay more. Business people don't care about being taxed on production because the tax is always paid by their customers, you and me. That's why the cost of everything is going up and opportunity is going down, as it has, does, and always will in non-capitalist nations, and directly in proportion to to the degree that they are so. So that's the issue. Here we have all these people sitting in these conferences, talking through their hats, talking about capitalism, when in fact everything they say is socialism, socialism, and more socialism. Just different variants of it. And they've got so many different names for it and different studies for it. And now they want to invent, you know, we've got to have a caring capitalist system. And a, like, it's, it's just amazing what they're talking. None, none of that is capitalism. There's all these hyphenated capitalisms. I think we talked about this before mm-hmm. on the show where they have crony capitalism, for example. Well, that's not capitalism. No. And none of those things are. If it's, if you, again, if you've got an adjective in front of it, it's almost unnecessary or it's, it's incorrect. Even Ayn Rand said she didn't prefer to use the term laissez-faire capitalism because capitalism is simply capitalism. Exactly. Unhyphenated. Exactly. So here we have all these people in Davos. You know, I'm looking at these articles here, and uh, <laughs> I like this cartoon of Obama here. I want to reoccupy the White House, make the rich pay. <laughs> right? But again, this is all part of... The issue. And here we have this. This here is an article from Jonathan Kay who gets it wrong too. He doesn't think that lowering taxes would help anybody because he doesn't see instant job creation from that process. From Jonathan Kay? Yes. I'm surprised. Oh, I'm not. I've seen yeah. lines of that 
quite a bit, and it's kind of scaring me coming out of the right. And that's part of the issue, too, is a lot of the people who are on the so-called right are not defending capitalism and do not seem to be well, able... Well, they're not capitalists. They're conservatives. Big difference. Exactly. So, let me end the show today by recommending a book whose title says it all. Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Now, it's not called Capitalism, the Perfect System. <laughs> it's not called Capitalism, How It Can Make You Rich. <laughs> okay. No, it's just called The Unknown, which means yet to be discovered. It's called The Ideal, which means there's no system better, nor any improved version available. They just aren't there. Which kind of sounds like our show, doesn't it? Just right. A yet-to-be-discovered ideal. Capitalism just right. Yeah, there you go. So tell your friends about it. Remind them there's no better version of what we do here available anywhere. And with that, we'll leave you for another week, and we'll return next week to continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, act right, stay right. We'll be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the everything will be... All those crowds back. You're too kind. Yeah. Really, really. No, no, no more. No, <laughs> can't take any more. Pushing. Uh, seem a little depressed tonight. What's the matter? Bah, just came from a funeral. Oh, not Uncle Willard again. No, no, my cousin, Little Leo. Little Leo. Yeah? 14 inches high. Hmm. Perfectly formed. Amazing. 14 inches high. Yeah, but there's something special about Little Leo. Oh? Yeah, whenever you're around him, you feel 10 feet tall. Must have been quite a guy, huh?